a new book. Invite somebody out to Calvary Chapel as we go through 1 Peter, and I know that they'll be tremendously blessed. Also, um, three weeks from this Sunday is Easter, Resurrection Sunday. So yeah, it's coming up on us fast. And uh, so what we're gonna have is some uh, flyers that will be given to you in the bulletin uh, in our uh, services that we'll have during Holy Week. And we'll have our Wednesday night on April the 1st. And usually what I do during Holy Week is I read a portion of the Upper Room Discourse. Since we just went through John's Gospel, and John uh, records, of course, that extensive um, uh, part of his Gospel, quarter of it, that's devoted to the Upper Room Discourse from chapters 13 through 17, we'll be looking at uh, one of the Synoptic Gospels um, as um, Jesus is there with his disciples. We'll take a communion, and then on Good Friday, we'll have a Good Friday service at noon, and uh, it'll be a family service, and we invite you out to that. That is usually about 45 minutes long, so you can get back to work. Some of you will be coming from work and have that hour off uh, of lunch to be able to come, so Good Friday service, and then we'll have our three Sunday morning services on Resurrection Sunday. So I want to encourage you, this is a time of year where you can really Pray about who it is that you're going to invite. And um, so that's your assignment, okay? Uh, pray about, think about who it is that you want to invite out to one of those services or to Easter morning services as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it's a great time to be able to do that. People are starting to think about those things. Uh, I think most people, even non-Christians, they know what Easter is about. And it isn't, you know, just about Easter bunnies and eggs. It may be to them, but they also know that Christians are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we have the opportunity to be able to explain that to them. And hopefully uh, the Lord uh, will just draw them to himself and, uh, and just a, a great opportunity to present the gospel to them. So be thinking about that, praying about that. And we're looking forward to uh, those services coming up. But we got a lot of great things that we're going to go over before then. So... Any opportunity you have to, to minister to somebody, grab them, all right, and um, bring them here or minister to them uh, yourself or any way. That's what we want to do is to be able to reach people and, um, and give them the truth that we know that Jesus Christ is alive and salvation comes through him and forgiveness. Uh, also, um, coming up a week from this Saturday is going to be, I have in a bulletin, a young uh, Timothy discipleship class. And um, the reason that I want to start doing this and, is because um, those of you uh, young guys, and it may be that you're young um, in the Lord, um, but maybe some of you that are a little bit younger, you know, in age, I really want to encourage you. Um, I wish when I was a teenager, you know, in high school and, um, or when I was in college, that I had the teaching of the Word of God in my life, and I didn't. And someone to just be able to encourage me in the things of the Lord. And that's what I desire to do, just not on Sundays and Wednesdays, but at other times as well. And of course, Paul the Apostle, he had a, those young protégés, you know, of his, Timothy and Titus, that he took under his wing. And he says, you know what manner of doctrine that I've taught to you? and uh, follow my example, and, and he really ministered to them and, and was a blessing to them, and it was more than just Timothy and Titus. You go through the, the epistles of the New Testament, you see there was a number of young guys that Paul took under his wing and uh, would labor with Paul and, and minister with him. So I want to be that uh, for uh, these young guys, and, and parents, those of you who have high schoolers, um, you know, I, I, if you have uh, a high schooler at least 16 years old, that you feel like he could benefit from this, um, you know, come and talk to me, and I'd love to talk to you, and just, I don't know who's all going to show up, I'm just going to have, uh, you know, guys show up, and we'll kind of go from there, but I want to not only encourage them in the Lord, in their walk with the Lord, but also in their service to the Lord, because what, one of the things that I've noticed about discipleship, you know, um, is that oftentimes it's, a lot of it's academic, and, and that's great, or going through the scriptures, or um, getting them grounded in the Word of God, which is a priority. Don't misunderstand me. But I also want to encourage them in serving the Lord. 
and um, that they can be used of the Lord. And uh, just to be thinking about where their gifting is and how God made them and how they can get plugged in and, um, and to be able to know that they can be used of the Lord. And that's what Paul did as well. I mean, he, these guys were being sent out all over the place throughout the empire. When you read about Paul's third missionary journey, he set up that school of discipleship there in Ephesus, and it is believed out of there that many of those churches throughout Proconsular Asia were established by those young guys that, you know, had gone out from there. Now, I know that, um, you know, you may be thinking or, um, you know, I'm not expecting my son or you might be thinking, guys, I, I'm not expecting to go out and start a church. That's not my point. But my point is Paul really took the time to just minister and teach and, and to encourage these guys in the Lord. And that's what I want to do. It is so needed today. And the reason is, is because parents and, and us here at Calvary Chapel, if we aren't encouraging each other and we're not encouraging our young people, if we're not really praying about that and desiring to take the time to do that, guess what's going to happen? The world's going to do it. And the world's going to start pulling at them. And the world's going to take the time to do that. So we want to make sure that we're encouraging them in the Lord. So if that's something, if you've got any questions, parents, about your high schoolers that are a junior or a senior um, that, you know, is mature and you think that this would be a blessing, um, those of you guys that are young in the Lord, I really want to encourage you in that way. So young Timothy starting on the 21st, um, that is a week from Saturday. I believe we got it scheduled for 9 o'clock, and, uh, and then we'll kind of take it from there. So just want to encourage you in that. Should be at Psalm chapter 10. Let's uh, get ready for our study as Lord, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for the opportunity to be once again in your word. And Lord, I'm so blessed, all those who've been coming out on Wednesday nights to hear the word of God. And um, there's a lot of other things that we could be doing, especially now that the days are getting longer and the weather's getting warmer. But Lord, I, I thank you that we can be here and take the time to be encouraged through your word to gain wisdom, godly wisdom, and Lord, be edified. And that's what we need tonight, particularly as we go through these psalms and we see that David was going through difficulties and trouble in his life, but he knew that he could find help in you and hope in you and you working in his life. So Lord, help us to get the right perspective and know that you are our help as we go through these psalms. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So as we go through these psalms, and, and we'll start at Psalm 10, um, the next several psalms are fairly short psalms, and um, they're written by David. Psalm 10 doesn't have a title to it, but most Bible scholars believe that this was probably penned by David. Um, we can't say with absolute certainty, but um, we know that David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, would pen, and his name is attributed uh, to 73 of the Psalms out of the 150, so almost half of them. It is very likely, very probable, and, and uh, we can almost say with certainty that David penned more than those 73. For example, Psalm 119, which is the longest chapter in the Bible, uh, there isn't an author attributed to Psalm 119, but David probably wrote that Psalm. Psalm 10 here was probably written by David. As a matter of fact, some scholars believe that this is an extension of Psalm 9 that we ended with last week. Psalm 9, we know, was a uh, psalm of David, but we don't know for sure. And, and I think that this psalm kind of stands on its own. But one of the things that we're going to see here is David is going to be crying out to the Lord in his time of trouble. And when we look at David's life in First and Second Samuel, David was a mighty king. He was a, a great warrior, and he had great victories. We think about his victory over Goliath. We think about his victory you know, over uh, the enemy that was around him. But David also went through many trials and difficulties in his enemies coming against him and the ungodly coming against him. And out of that, these psalms were written as David is crying out to the Lord. And that's why it's such an encouragement to you and to me, because in this life, we go through difficulties, don't we? We have those who come against us, those who persecute us, the ungodly speak, you know, against us. And that's what David is experiencing. 
And the pattern that we're going to see in, in these psalms that we've already seen and going through the first nine and we'll continue to see even after tonight as we continue to go through this wonderful book is that David cries out to the Lord and then there's that word but. And he begins to then praise the Lord and get his focus on the Lord. And it's a pattern that we need to pay attention to because in those times of difficulties, particularly when we have somebody that's coming against us, we can, you know, cry out to the Lord. And David is expressing his feelings. He's expressing his frustration. Um, he is, you know, asking the Lord, why does it seem like the wicked prosper? And why do you seem so afar off? And, and those are the things that we will read. And he's expressing his feelings but then he gets his mind and his heart on the Lord, knowing that the Lord is going to be his help. And it's very important for us to do that in our Christian lives when we face that difficulty or those coming against us, because we need to know that the Lord is there and we can turn to him and he hears us. When we go through 1 Peter, we're going to see this um, Sunday, that Peter, when he's writing to the Christians there in about 64 AD, he's writing right before uh, he is, um, you know, martyr for his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, which happened a couple years after he writes First and Second Peter. And we know that Peter is writing to those Christians that were experiencing trials and difficulties by the hand of persecution that had come against the Christians by Caesar Nero. Rome was beginning to really come down on the Christians, put them to death. Caesar Nero was persecuting the Christians and the Christian leaders particularly. And so he's encouraging them in their trials. And so we're going to see that as we go through First uh, Peter, um, how he does that. And we're going to be encouraged tonight. And it's important for us to know that the Lord gives us hope, that there's always hope in the Lord, that he hears us and he sees us and he desires to work on our behalf. So let's look at Psalm 10 as we read that, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? And why do you hide in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. He blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is, none, is in none of his thoughts. So here we see that um, this psalmist, if it's David, and, and I think that perhaps it very well could be, but he's expressing his, his frustration. He, he's uh, feeling like, Lord, why are you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times uh, of trouble? And we can feel that way. Now, he's got his focus on the wicked. And he's going to go on, and as he's began to talk about how the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, um, you know, uh, the wicked is in his proud countenance. And we can feel that way when we have somebody particularly comes against us that is, you know, ungodly. Uh, here he's talking about the wicked. In the Psalms and in the Proverbs, there's a clear distinction that we see between the wicked and the righteous, between the holy and the unholy, between the wise of heart and the fool of heart. And that's what we see that here the psalmist is writing about, Lord, I'm being you know, attacked here. I'm experiencing difficulty by the hands of the wicked. Why does it feel like you're so far off? Why do you hide yourself in this time? Now, you might recall when we were going through the book of Job just recently, that there was a great debate that was going on. And, and in that debate, as it was Job's three friends that were accusing Job, you must have sinned because the wicked are going to be punished and the righteous get blessed by God. And they kind of were digging in their heels and, and, and saying that, Job, you must have done wickedly because you're going through all these losses and God is judging you because of that, so you need to repent. So we had quite an extensive you know, uh, you know, study on that. But Job would come back in that debate and he would say, listen, sometimes the wicked prosper and sometimes the righteous go through difficulties. And Job was right in that. So as here the psalmist is writing about that, the wicked are proud and they're arrogant. Uh, the wicked persecute the poor and don't seek God. Don't even think about God. Isn't that interesting here that God is in none of his thoughts there in verse 4? And that really struck me this afternoon as I was thinking about that. Because as Christians, every single day, 
we should be thinking about God, right? We do think about God. We get up in the morning and, and we have our devotions and we're praying to the Lord. Um, I can't imagine going a day not thinking about God. And yet there are people that go day after day, week after week, year after year, some people even their entire life where they never think about God. Have you ever talked to somebody and when you, you mention God, there's really a kind of a, they're taken back because they don't think about the Lord. They don't think about God. Oh, once in a while, they, they'll think about God, you know, in a general term or something. But I can't imagine what life would be like without thinking about God, what, without that desire to want to fellowship with Him and want to know Him and want to live for Him. So here the psalmist is writing, they don't even think about, you know, the Lord at all. And speaking of the, uh, the wicked, here in verse 5, uh, he continues writing, His ways are always prospering. Your judgments are far above, out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he snares at them. He has said in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. And under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. So speaking of the pride of the wicked, uh, saying that I'll never be moved. I, I won't be moved. Uh, I, I won't have adversity. I'll always be prosperous is what they say. And, and they're full of deceit and, and uh, full of oppression and cursing. And, and that's the way that the psalmist feels. And then in verse 8, as we continue, he sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the sicker places, he murders the innocent. His eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. He lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He catches the poor when he draws him into his net. So he crouches, he lies low, that the helpless may fall by his strength. He has said in his heart, God has forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see. So here as we see that the psalmist is just expressing uh, the characteristics of the wicked. The wicked prey on the helpless, just like a wild animal. And, and he thinks that God doesn't see. God can't and won't do anything. That, that he, he turns away. And here's the thing. It's like a wild animal that's in the lurking places, as he writes here, just wanting to, as a lion in his den, uh, he lies in wait to catch the poor. You know, like a wild animal that's going to pounce on his prey, the helpless. I do want to remind us of something, and that is that our enemy, that is Satan, he is, as Peter, we're going to see in First Peter, is described as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So be wise and be sober. Be vigilant. Be watching is what Peter says because the enemy Satan is like a lion who's seeking to pounce on you. And we need to take heed to that warning. We need to take heed to what Peter is saying to us because we don't want to go into the enemy's territory. We need to understand that he's like, you know, a lion seeking to pounce on us. And that's why we need to be careful every single day that we are walking with the Lord and staying close to him. And um, it's like I just read on um, the Yellowstone uh, website that the grizzlies are starting to come out of hibernation. And, um, and it's the males that come out first. And then in about a couple of weeks, the females with their cubs will come out. And when they come out, they're hungry. And they're all kind of down in the valley below because there's a lot of snow up above. And they're seeking to, to get those animals that are, you know, uh, been very weakened by the winter. Uh, when it comes into May, when uh, the elk are having their young, the bison are having their young, you can go to Yellowstone and Lamar Valley and you can watch the grizzlies, you know, and the wolves preying on the young and the helpless. And it's very fascinating to watch. But here is the psalmist, you know, describing that's the way the wicked coming against me. So here is that description as the psalmist is very much discouraged by all of this. And then in verse 12, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the humble. Why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, you will not require an account. In other words, God doesn't care. He doesn't care. The wicked is thinking what I do. And here's the thing, that those who um, rebel against the Lord, sometimes they can think that God can't do anything or he won't do anything 
or um, you know, they mistake the long-suffering of God and the patience of God. That God can't deal with the wicked. He doesn't really see and care. But God does care and he does see. So don't mistake you know, the long-suffering and patience that God has with man and his incredible grace. Because a lot of us, we have the testimony of God was long-suffering with us. As we look at our past, that I'm so thankful that the Lord you know, uh, was patient and long-suffering and, and he drew me to himself and now I'm a Christian and all of that's under the blood of Jesus Christ. But God does see, and that's what the psalmist writes in verse 14, but you have seen, for you observe trouble and grief to repay it by your hand. Notice in verse 14 the word but. He, he goes from that transition of, of focusing on those who are coming against him and, and being stumbled by the wicked and seeing what they do. And he says, but you, Lord, I know that you have seen. You observe trouble and grief to repay it by your hand. The helpless commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations have perished out of his land. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear, to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, that the man of the earth may oppress no more. So again, God will take action. He will deal with the wicked. And you hear the humble. You hear us, Lord. And that's important for us to know and to remember because sometimes we feel like, Lord, in my trouble, in, in being overwhelmed, or the trial that I'm going through, when I cry out to you, is it just hitting the ceiling? Do you really hear? And we're going to read over and over again that the psalmist writes, Lord, you do hear. You hear the humble. You hear your children. You hear those who belong to you. And always remember that, that he hears your cries as you cry out to him. So here in Psalm 10, uh, we finish it. And in Psalm 11, we see that this is to the chief musician, a Psalm of David. And we read that in the Lord, I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow and they make ready their arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So once again, David is feeling troubled and he writes, Lord, I put my trust in you. Now, scholars believe that, that David is writing this during the time of either he's fleeing from Saul or he's fleeing from, from um, Absalom. You recall that uh, we've already seen a couple of the Psalms that David wrote when he was fleeing from his son Absalom that we read about in 2 Samuel chapter 15 when his son usurped the throne away from David, stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And David had to flee Jerusalem with some of his counselors and his leaders and his mighty men. And they would go out to the wilderness. So I think that this probably was written during the time, another time. And I'll tell you why. Because here he says, in the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? And so in other words, there are those who are counseling him and saying, why don't you just, in this difficulty, just get out, David, flee, flee to the mountain. So perhaps this is a time when Saul is pursuing him. And David writes right away, I'm going to trust in you. Lord, I put my trust in you. Now, how is it that we feel at times when we really have somebody who's coming against us or we're going through a trial? Have you ever felt like just fleeing? It'd be easier, you know, if I just go away. It'd be easier if I just, you know, remove myself from this or quit or whatever it is. And what we need to do is is remember what David does here. He says, Lord, I'm going to put my trust in you and allow the Lord to work in that situation. There have been times in ministry that I felt like fleeing. Like, Lord, this is too hard. This is too difficult. I don't know if I want to do this anymore. And I knew I was not to do that as I gave myself counsel in that. Why should I continue in ministry? This is too hard or too difficult. 
when I knew that the Lord was saying, you need to trust in me, and I'm so thankful that the Lord kept me there, where, okay, Lord, I'm going to trust in you. I want to see you work. I know you're going to work, and that if you want me to continue, you'll sustain me, you'll guide me, you'll keep me here. And there are times where we feel like, you know, the easiest thing is to run. Now, there are circumstances and situations where we do need to flee. But we need to make sure that we're seeking the Lord. And we need to make sure that we're trusting in Him. And people may mean well, and they may come to you and say, well, you need to flee, you need to quit. But David, at this time, in this psalm here, he realized that that was the wrong thing to do. It reminds me of what we went through with the book Nehemiah, and that we're going to cover in the men's conference, that guys, we're going to start sign up here on Sunday. And in the men's conference, we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 3, where Nehemiah, he has those guys, Tobiah and Sanballat, that are saying, hey, get off the wall, Nehemiah. They were discouraging the, um, the Jews from rebuilding the wall in Nehemiah. Let's talk about this. They were coming against Nehemiah. Come down off the wall. And Nehemiah said, no, I'm not going to come down off the wall. That I'm going to stay here. And he had fashioned and stationed the men there in front of their homes, and they were side by side, as you read in the text, with a trial in one hand and a sword in the other, in case the enemy came against them. They had a trial in one hand, doing the service of the Lord. They were going to stay on the wall. Nehemiah was going to stay on the wall. And I always noticed that in that text, as a matter of fact, it was Sue that brought it out to me as we were discussing it, that they were side by side. And it's so important that, again, that we have other brothers and sisters in our lives that are there by our sides to encourage us and bless us in a time of difficulties. And Nehemiah says, I'm not going to get off the wall. It is good work that I am doing. And there are all kinds of things that can cause us or people that will come into our lives that will, you know, make it difficult for us. And, you know, come down off the wall. Come, let's talk about this. And Nehemiah said, no. I'm not going to be distracted from serving you and walking with you and, and living that godly life for you, Lord. I'm going to be here on the wall. And we need to stay focused on the Lord. So he says, Lord, I'm going to put my trust in you. And then again, when we're persecuted, we can feel like, you know, that, um, you know, the advice is to run and look, the wicked bend their bow, make ready their arrow on the string. They shoot secretly at the upright in heart. You know, what can the righteous do? Well, David is going to show us what the righteous does as he continues here in verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's uh, throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire, and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. And then this short psalm ends with David writing, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. So here we are to remember that God is on the throne and that he's in control. We need to always remember that. That, Lord, you're on the throne. You haven't gone for a long walk. You know, or taken a nap where you're not seeing me. He's on the throne, he's in control, and we need to always remember that. Because sometimes we think, you know, that the circumstances are what's in control. But Lord, you're in control. And he says that the eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous. That's one of the things that we will go over on this Sunday. That in our life, there's a testing of our faith. Peter is going to write, you know, when you go through the firing trials, there's a testing of your faith and a refining of your faith that's going to take place. James writes the same thing in his epistle in chapter 1. He talks about a testing of the faith. He says that it, knowing that the testing of your faith is uh, counted all joy, first of all, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, and let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. In other words, 
what Brother James is telling us, what Peter is going to tell us, that in those trials we, we, can, we can have joy. We can, we can count it all as joy because the testing of our faith, there's a testing of our faith. Peter refers to it as a refining of our faith, a refining like metal that is heated up, gold in the fire, and then the dross comes to the top and it gets scraped off. That's the, what the Lord wants to do in the trials that we are in. And in those trials, he wants to produce patience, or that is endurance. And then that endurance is going to have his perfect work in bringing us to completeness, or that is maturity, so that we lack nothing. The Lord will test our faith in those trials. It's a testing not to tear you down, but to build you up and to refine you. So that endurance, in other words, that I'm going to wait on you, Lord, and I'm going to trust in you, and I know that you're going to work. And that's one thing that trials will do is it will help you to be patient. And I don't know about you, but I'm not a very patient person. I want things to happen now, things to be resolved now. If I can see the end result of it, I'm okay. But if I can't, and I don't have any control over it, I can become very impatient. And the Lord desires to teach me patience, endurance, to wait on Him and trust in Him and to know that He's in control, that He's on the throne. And then a refining process that takes place as I just wait on Him, bringing me to maturity, to completeness, doing that work in me, and He desires to do that work in you. That's why we can count it all as joy. So here David is writing the same things as he writes there. And, and then he says that God is going to deal with the wicked. And God will show favor to the righteous. In Psalm 12, as we move on to the chief musician, to an eight-string harp, a psalm of David. Psalm 12, help, that's the first word. If you've ever been in trouble in life where that's all you can kind of say is, help, Lord, I need help. Lord, for the godly man ceases. And again, he's going to express his difficulties. Help, David writes. Here is this sweet psalmist of Israel. Here is this articulate man. Isn't he, David so articulate? That's what I love about the psalms. Because he really, I can read this and think, wow, you know. Uh, he's so inspired by, you know, God. He he's, is a sweet psalmist. He's so articulate. But at times, he just says, help. And that's what I do. Lord, help. It reminds me of Peter. When Peter was walking on water, and all of a sudden he got his eyes off the Lord, and he began to sink, and all he had time to cry out was, Lord, save me. Help, Lord. Lord, save me is what he's saying here as we continue in Psalm 12. The Lord for the godly man, as I read, ceases. For the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak idly everyone with his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak so here david perhaps is feeling alone everyone's against me the nation has turned against the lord has turned against you god we can feel that way don't we when we have those who come against us maybe you're in the workplace where you're the only christian and you can feel alone maybe in your family you might be the only christian that's in your family and because of that, it is hard and it is very difficult and you feel alone. It might be at school. It might be, uh, you know, with whatever group of people that you're the only Christian and you feel alone. And I think that's what David is feeling. And everyone's coming against me and the ungodliness of, of people speaking against me. But we need to remember that we are not alone. And David continues to write in verse 3, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things. Who have said with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? Proverbs 6 tells us that a lying tongue is an abomination to the Lord. Here again, speaking of the wicked, they feel like they're going to prevail. The destructive tongue that would come against David. They feel like they're going to prevail, but they won't. Listen, as Christians, it is very, very important. The words that we speak, there's a lot written that we'll see in the Psalms, and particularly when we go through Proverbs over and over again about how it is that we speak, the words that we speak. 
And then we know that Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 5 that he would say, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but only that which is necessary for edification, building up people, that it may impart grace to the hearer. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. So it is very important, the words that we speak as a Christian. It's not corruption, but we are to be speaking in a way that's building up. And listen, we are, as we see here, David was, uh, you know, one that slander and gossip and false accusations would come against him, as we see very clearly in the Psalms, when he was even king of, of Israel. And it hurt him, and he felt alone. And whenever we do that, we hurt others. And we need to be careful that we don't fall into that because it can be very subtle. It can, it can easily happen. We join in in the gossip against the boss or against a coworker or against another brother and sister. We begin to speak corrupt words. We get involved in slander. We get involved with gossiping, whatever it might be. And we as Christians are to stay away from that. And particularly what we are to stay away from, listen, is never, never put somebody down thinking that you're going to be exalted. The Lord will never honor that. If I put them down, then I'll look better. If I criticize them, then, you know, I'll look better to everybody else. I'll get ahead. And here, those who are speaking against David are thinking that's going to happen. But know this, as a Christian, it won't happen. God will not bless that. He will not honor that. You might think that it's going to work. Maybe those of the world might exalt you. But how is it that God's going to look at it? He's not going to honor it. So we want to make sure that no corrupt word proceeds out of our mouth. And, and here is we continue in verse 5, for the oppression of the poor, for the sign of the needy. Now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. Um, you know, verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver, silver tried to a furnace of earth, purified seven times. In other words, the word of God is not corrupt. It's not defiled. It's pure. It's been refined. It's true is what David is saying here. And you shall preserve them. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. And the wicked prowl on every side, then vileness is exalted among the sons of men. I think one of the big problems in our society is we like to exalt those who are very ungodly, who are vile, who are very vain. That's a problem in our society. We like to exalt that person who has fame, who has, you know, fortune, who, um, you know, is perhaps, uh, whether they're in the music industry or sports or uh, got prestige, and, and they're vile. And yet our young people, you know, can look up to them. So parents and grandparents and uncles and aunts, we need to encourage not only ourselves, but encourage our young people, our children, our grandchildren, who it is that we look up to and honor? You know, who really is it that, that we can look up to and honor? Now, we exalt only the Lord. I know that. But we are to teach them the one who is humble, the one who lives for the Lord, that is the one that you can honor. That's the one that, that you can look at and, and admire. You know, they got godly integrity. They're humble. They care about people. They're walking with the Lord. But our young people's like, oh, you know, they exalt those that, you know, are, are you know, living in a very vile way. And, and it saddens me of what we are calling heroes today and being looked up to today, completely in rebellion against God. So we want to make sure that, that you know what, we want to show our children that the one to really honor is the one who's living for the Lord. Dads, you be a hero to your sons, to your daughters. You know, those of us who are walking with the Lord, that our young people can really look up to us and not look to us and exalt us on a pedestal. No, that's not what I'm talking about, but I think you know what I mean. To be able to see the godly example in us, to be able to be an encouragement to them. They need that so desperately. 
So here is, is David as he ends this psalm. He says, the foulness is exalted among the sons of men. And then let's do Psalm 13, and we can get through that here tonight. And we read that to the chief musician, a psalm of David, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And how long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my own soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? So once again, David feels alone. He's in despair. And at times we can feel neglected by God. We can feel like he's hiding his face from us. We can feel like he doesn't love us. We can feel, we can feel, we can feel. Emotions can be pretty strong. God's given us emotions. But we're to walk by faith, not by sight. Remember that the Lord wants us to walk by faith, not just by our feelings. And we can feel left to ourselves when we're going through difficulties. But the word of God says this, that he will never leave you or forsake you. Now, in those times when you feel alone, Lord, you're not seeing, you're not in control. What have we learned tonight through God's word? That he does see, right? That he does hear. That he sits on the throne. He is in control that we're not alone. So are we going to believe it by faith, or are we going to go with our feelings? And again, feelings can be deceiving. Feelings can mislead us. Feelings are very, very real. Emotions, God gave us emotions. But we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith. And I'm sure that you've gone through this process, I know that I have, that I've said, Lord, I feel this way, but I know your word says otherwise, so I am going to stand on the truth of your word that I am not alone, that you're with me, and that you do love me, and that you do hear me, and you're going to work on my behalf, and your promises are true for me. So we know God's word says that he'll never leave us or forsake us, even though here David, in the honesty of his heart, is, is writing, Lord, I feel this way. I, I feel like that I am alone. In verse 3, as he says, Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed against him. Lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. So David feels helpless, hopeless, he is afraid if I go to sleep, my enemy will kill me. I need some rest. I need some rest. Now, in difficulties, I've said this many times to some of you, that it is a help to me, and I hope it's a help to you, that it's not just only an issue of trusting in the Lord, but he wants us to rest in him as well. It's trusting in the Lord and resting in the Lord. Sometimes the resting in the Lord is what's hard, isn't it? Just resting that, Lord, I have the confidence and the assurance, and Lord, that you are working in my life. I have that peace that you do hear me. You are in control, that I'm not alone. So it is trusting in him, and then us coming to the point of resting in him. And if I am not resting in him again, then I become very restless and I become very anxious, and I begin to stir, and I begin to fret, and I begin to worry. So it is trusting in him and also resting in him, resting in his promises, resting in his love, and his assurance is given to us. So David's looking for that rest here in, in Psalm 13, and then he finishes, but I have trust in your mercy. There's that word but again. Hey, I'm overwhelmed. I feel alone. I'm even scared to go to sleep. I'm afraid my enemy is going to, you know, overtake me and is going to kill me. And then he says, but I've trusted in you, in your mercy, and my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Isn't that wonderful? David was able to take his troubles and turn it into a song and rejoice in the Lord. And to say, I'm going to trust in you. And that's the work the Lord wants to do in our lives as well. He wants us to just trust in him and to rest in him as well. Let's do one more very quickly. Psalm 14, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. 
The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. So here, a Psalm of David, where he's looking at the character of the ungodly, and then David at the end is going to call for the kingdom of God to be established. The person who says in their hearts, there is no God, is called a fool. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, the fool despises wisdom and instruction. So as I mentioned to you, the book of Psalm and the book of Proverbs speaks about the wise and speaks about the fool. And in their heart, they say there is no God. So there's a heart issue there. The word for fool here in Hebrew means, it's a word that refers to one who's stubborn like an animal. Just very stubborn, sticking in, you know, digging in their heels and saying, I'm not going to believe in God. It doesn't say that they lack intelligence. They may be very intelligent. They're very intelligent people that say in their heart, there is no God, and I will not believe in God, and I don't want to believe in God. They lack spiritual wisdom and insight and humility and coming to, you know, that point of there is a God. And Lord, I'm going to humble myself before you. They're self-reliant. They think they don't need God. They don't want God. And they want God out of their lives. They become more corrupt in, in God's eyes. And then as we continue in, in verse 3, as, or verse 2, again, the Lord looks down from the heaven upon the children of men to see if there is any who understand who seek God. They've all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Does that remind you, those of you who have read the book of Romans, in chapters 1, 2, in the beginning of chapter 3, Paul's making the case that we've all sinned. And so in chapter 1, the heathen has sinned. In chapter 2, the self-righteous have sinned. And then in chapter 3, as he's making his case, as he then in chapter 3 of Romans will introduce that doctrine of justification, he says that we've all sinned. And Paul borrows from here, from Psalm 14 and verse 3, he uses this, he quotes this that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all sinned, you know, we've all turned aside. We're all corrupt. There's none who does good, no, not one. One of the things is we talk to somebody that they might say, well, I'm a good person. And we can look at their life and we can think, you know what, they, they are a blessing. They are, you know, what we consider a good person. But here's the problem, they're not good enough. They're not good enough. None of us are. And that's what we can explain to them, that none of us are good enough. We've all turned aside. We've all fallen short. And that's why Jesus came and died for you, that we just might believe in him, that we might come to him in faith, that we would be justified in his sight by grace, just surrendering our hearts to him. In verse 4, have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord. There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. So here God defends the generation of the righteous. And here he's speaking, those who eat up my people as they eat bread, speaking of greediness. They think they're doing well. They're, there's strong and confident, but actually God's going to deal with them. They might think that they're getting away with it, but God is their refuge, and God will save their people in verse 7. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for these short psalms that we've gone through and to be able to go through them and be blessed by them and Lord, to be encouraged because all of us go through the trials and difficulties and of life and people coming against us and those who, Lord, um, think that, um, Lord, that they can get away with oppressing those who are fatherless or poor or weak. But, Lord, we know that you're our defense. We know you're in control. We know you hear us. 
And Lord, we know that you are our refuge and a very present help. And Father, I just want to pray because I know that there's others out in the coffee shop and those listening by live stream. That as David recognized that none of us are good in and of ourselves, that Lord, our righteousness isn't in ourselves. It only comes through you. And that's what Paul was explaining why he borrowed out of Psalm 14 to explain that we have all gone aside, we've all fallen short, and we need your grace and your mercy. We need to surrender to you for justification, a legal term meaning being declared righteous. It only comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. So if there's anybody here tonight by chance that you've never done that, you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, it's an opportunity to do so tonight because you cannot come into relationship with God in and of your own merit, yourself, by your own beliefs. It is through God's plan of salvation. That's why he sent his son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So if there's anyone here, you've never surrendered your life to Jesus for salvation. He is your salvation. There is none other. And you can cry out to the Lord tonight to receive eternal life and forgiveness of sin and be declared righteous by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you can pray right where you're sitting or even if you're at home. And you can pray... That, Lord, I know that I have sinned. Oh, Jesus, forgive me. And I believe you died on the cross of Calvary for my sins. And that you rose again in your life. And you, I'm surrendering my life to a living Savior, a risen Savior. I confess my sins to you, that I am a sinner. Wash me clean by your precious blood. Forgive me. Father, thank you for making me a new creation through Jesus Christ. Be my personal Lord and Savior. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for hearing my prayer for all of us that we would remember this. For those of us who are in Christ, as Paul would write, that we're a new creation in Christ. Behold, all things have passed away, the old things. All things now become new. And knowing that we belong to the Lord, not only do we have eternal life through Him, but He desires for you to experience His abundant life. He's your help. He's your strength. He's your refuge. He's everything you need. And I pray that we would always, every day, that we would cry out to you, Lord. Draw close to you and know that you're there, that you love us. May we rest in your love and trust in your word. Bless everyone here now as we go our way, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. 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 Would you please stand? I'll be here to pray with anybody that needs prayer. And um, love to pray with you and bless you in any way that I can.